0: Um, all right, let me pray for Erin for this morning. Uh, Father, I'm just grateful um, for Erin and the way that she does come before you, just with a humble heart, wanting to receive from you as as she has studied this passage and that she brings um, the word that she you have given her to us. Lord, uh, please just use her as your mouthpiece and speak to us and still our hearts and minds so that we can receive your truth for this morning. Thanks in your name. Amen. Okay, can you hear me okay? In the back, am I okay? Good. Sure. Is that better? Okay. So as you saw, I was not originally on the teaching schedule this year. I had said no in May, I guess. And I didn't think I was going to be able to even do women's Bible study this year. But Fortunately, we re- rearranged some work schedules and I've been coming and it's been amazing. I missed you all so much last year. Um, and there was one Sunday in August where I felt the Lord say, I'm going to have you speak at Women's Bible study this year. And I, w- I felt excited. And I said, oh, maybe I should email the team and say, I'd be willing if anyone sh- needed a replacement and someone couldn't do it. Maybe I should email them and tell them. And then I thought, no, if God needs me to speak, it'll happen. And Sarah called me on Monday, the next day, and said, Donna Donnelly can't speak. Would you be willing? And I said, Yes, yeah, God told me yesterday I was going to speak. <laughs> so I knew then that he had something for me in 2 Samuel chapter 20. Um, so let's begin. This passage is, again, quite sad. There's an unhappy homecoming, a confronting of the consequences of sin, two murders, and an assessment of the status of Israel, which is dark and bleak. But amidst the brokenness, the consequences, the fallen pride, I heard God share his heart for the hardest places we find ourselves, his faithfulness to provide light, even in darkness, and his longing to be our home and to bring us home to himself. The chapter opens with David's long walk home. As Joy so wonderfully detailed for us last week, there is tension among Israel. There's division, jealousy, and unrest. The people are angry and discontent, and David is weary. While they've achieved a military victory, for David, it is bitter with nothing sweet about it. I have this picture in my head of David walking so slowly, his feet shuffling, head down, shoulders slumped, his tunics tear-stained, just defeat exuding from his body. I've walked with this posture before. I can feel the weight for him. He just wants to get home. But before he makes it there, enter rebellion number two. Reading from 2 Samuel chapter 20. Now, there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David. And we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse, every man to his tent, so Israel. Sheba, the Benjaminite, is from King Saul's tribe and is referred to as a scoundrel. He is taking advantage of the dissension you can just feel amongst the tribes of Israel and the tribe of Judah and uses this to leverage a rebellion. He insults David as being a son of Jesse, a simple shepherd, inciting. You have nothing to offer us, and we don't want any part of you. Only the Judahites remain with David as they finish their journey from the Jordan back to Jerusalem, while Sheba leads Israel on, feeding their jealous, discontented hearts, inciting lies of rebellion away from God's chosen king. Matthew fifteen thirteen says, Jesus answered, Every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone, they are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind both will fall into a pit. Isaiah fifty three six all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. John 10, ten The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. So David comes home, but this home is not what home should feel like. This is not true home. This place is not resounding of grace and accepted and belovedness. This home is a mess because as we live our lives, they inherently break apart, leaving shards of broken pieces across our messy tapestry of life. Singer Ellie Holcomb once said, we all come from where every good thing comes from. We all come from the heart and the mind of God, and our work is to remember where we came from and to remember that because of who Jesus is, because of God's heart, to not leave us as we are in this broken world, we are called back home. We are all on our way back home. Duke Divinity Professor of Theology and the Arts, Jeremy Begbie, gives us an auditory connection of being home in the Lord. That the structure of music is such that you start off in a key and then you go away. And that as you start to come back to that resolving note, everything in you is leaning forward as if to say, go home, go home. You hear it in, whose fleece was white as snow. Music taps into that story that all of us are living. We start off home, we can fall away, and we all long to go back home. Picking back up in verse three, and David came to his house at Jerusalem and the king took the 10 concubines who he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. I really struggle with this verse. My heart just aches for these women. These women who could not marry again, for it would be like saying that that new husband or man was taking over David's power, which is what Absalom was doing in chapter 16. So for fear of this tainting David's kingship, these women were kept under guard until the day they died. Well, in some ways it would seem like protection, but how could it also not feel like imprisonment? They never went outside the palace walls again had no opportunity to bear children, and were therefore left without a legacy. And in this time and culture was the highest mark of shame. Not to mention the incredible trauma they were bearing from being taken by Absalom. Alistair Begg says this is all a result of the fall, not a result of the pressures of an alien world, but of the heart of man. These women are living out aftershocks of David's sin, not just his adultery, not just his polygamy. Not just his rashness and leaving them behind when he fled the city. One decision leads to another and before their eyes, these beautiful girls were stripped of the life they thought they would have in the royal harem. This is unfair. This is unjust. And I can barely stand to think about these women without being overwhelmed with grief grief for them. And yet they were not forgotten. The Hebrew word mishmareth, which is the word where we find seclusion or put them in a house under guard, seems to mean giving charge over. But it's also used in 1 Samuel twenty-two, twenty-three 23 as meaning safe. Yahweh did not abandon these women. He still reigned over them as Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. Jehovah Shema, the Lord is there. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord Heals. One of my most cherished experiences in leading worship is watching you all worship him amidst your stories. I know many of your broken hearts, and I'm looking out at your faces, and I'm watching you sing, or joining in with the body to declare promises from his word. I get this intimate glimpse of your trust and your faith in some of the hardest seasons of your lives seeing your faithfulness to him in his faithfulness lifts up my eyes and I see his glory even brighter because we love a God who calls us his beloved and calls us into his beloved rest and he laments with us in our broken stories and for some of us that's just years of detours we did not want or see coming For others of us, it is one broken moment that seems to change the entire journey altogether. No detour, no smooth exit ramp, just our life seemingly destroyed. Life as we knew it, like for these beautiful concubines, gone. We're not always privy to the depth of other stories, and it can be tempting to assume we know what it is, fill in the blanks with our assumptions based on how people present themselves. But life is hard. And no one is unmarked by some measure of grief and loss, and I am no exception. I recently read David Pallison's article entitled, I Will Never Get Over It. Help for the aggrieved. While I knew it was good for me to read, it was hard and heavy, and it felt unfair at times because of how unfair life can be. But I found that there were some really powerful words in it that I wanted to share with you all. I needed to hear them for myself, so please do not hear me putting these words as any kind of command on you. I read them to myself initially in a whisper. So please put a blanket of gentleness on your own heart as you hear these. Perhaps you find it curiously liberating to say, I'll never get over it. That is right, of course. How freeing to admit that truth about such a terrible wrong. I'm not supposed to just move on and hope it simply washes away. So I don't have to chase an impossibility. I don't have to ruin my life with attempts at anesthesia. I don't have to feel like a failure because I'm not happy and smiley all the time. If you aren't expecting to find some magic that will leave you unmarked, then you can get down to facing the pain of wrong. You can get down to wrestling out where whether there is actually a way to walk through fire and flood. And perhaps it makes you feel hopeless to admit that some experiences will never go away. Hear me rightly. I don't mean that the poison and darkness of the experience will always haunt you. You won't get over it, but you do not need to be forever defined by what happened. You won't forget what happened, but there is a way out of the raptor's claws. It won't erase what happened. That would be to live a falsehood. But realistic hope runs deeper than any hurt. It can take the same experience and offer a different script, a different outcome, a different meaning. You would be false to your humanity if you simply got over it. A significant experience must mark you for life. But pain and hatred and despair do not need to remain as running sores. Your life does not need to become a poisoned well of bitterness. When something is so wrong that you will never get over it, your reaction will either make you wise or will poison you. Great suffering puts a fork in the road. You will choose. Those words again were from David Allison. From 2 Corinthians 1 4, God comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with we have ourselves been comforted by God. You can give away what you've received, and that is one of the ways that good comes out of evil without ever insinuating that evil is anything but evil, or anything hard is anything but hard. I don't know what the day-to-day lives looked like for the concubines, but I know what the Lord says about his beloved. Jeremiah 31, 25, For I will satisfy the weary soul, and every languishing soul I will replenish. Psalm 34:18. the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Psalm 147, 3, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Along with countless verses on how to care for widows, like from Psalm 68, 5, father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God, In his holy habitation. Singer Davy Flowers writes a song called I Was Loved. Here are some words from that song. When all of this is over, let it be known I had a better portion than all the world affords. When all my days are counted, let it be known that it was only Jesus who made it all worth it. He made it all worth it. He is our home and he will bring us home. The next 18 verses contain the story of David's men in pursuit of Sheba. Interestingly, Sheba is not one of the main characters the text focuses on. Instead, Joab is mentioned 22 times. So we know there is something in his life and heart that we can learn from. And as we read these, we have to remember what has happened since chapter 11. Chapters 11 through 20 display this painful decline of David's reign due to his sin with Bathsheba and how our choices and our sins have significance, not just in our own lives. Sin causes a ripple effect, and in our chapter today, we see the impact that David's choices also had on Joab, and ultimately on the future of David's reign. While we go through this, I want to tenderly note that we have all had a part of our lives that we wish we could eliminate from our stories, where we could turn back time, where we have been the ones whose sin has infiltrated those around us. So let our hearts be open to where God wants to speak into us and see what encouragement his word gives us to journey onward. Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do more harm to us than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men and the Cherethites and the Pelophites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. So what's of significance here is that David has skipped over Joab and given leadership to Amasa, was just the commander of Absalom's army. And when Amasa doesn't show up, David's second choice is Joab's brother Abishai. And when all the men head out, it is still Joab that the men show their allegiance to. This usurps David's kingship and gives a weight of power to Joab that only fuels his desire for blood and authority. What follows is a gruesome elimination of Joab's rival. Verse 8 says, when they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath, fastened on his thigh, and as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand, and so Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. We have flashbacks to Joab's murder of Abner at the gate in chapter 3 and flash forwards to Judas's betrayal when kissing the cheek of Jesus. The using of his right hand to grab his beard is significant because it is the hand of battle. It gives a warning to the opponent. I'm here for you. So Joab disarms Amasa and takes his life with one jab of his left hand. What follows is just as ugly. Joab is able to walk away as verse 12 says, leaving Amasa to lay wallowing in his blood in the highway. And one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And after one compassionate man removes Amasa from the middle of the road and covers him with a garment, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba the Son of Vickery. So just to recap, Amasa was given the lead commander role, and then it was given to Abishai. Joab took things into his own hands, and now Amasa is dead. Apparently, Abishai has seceded to Joab as the commander. Dale Ralph Davis writes Joab does not try to become king, but yet he acts as his own king. He is loyal to David, but essentially unsubmissive to David. What we can understand from these verses is that Joab's character is one of arrogance, pride, and ruthlessness. He sadly seems to have gone his own way without a pathway for others to speak any authority over him. We can only imagine that this might be a picture of where he stands with the Lord. Commentator Mary J. Evans tells us, By usurping David's function and taking on the role of judge and jury, Joab was just as guilty of betrayal as Amasa had ever been, and maybe just as guilty of rebellion as Sheba. Picking up at verse 14, and Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of beth and all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of beth They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. And he came near to her and the woman said, are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I'm listening. Then she said, they used to say in former times, let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled a matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bickery, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give him, give up him alone and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people on her wisdom and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bickery and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet. And they dispersed from the city, every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. I love the part of this section that tells us it is a wise woman who is actually able to speak into Joab's actions, to give him pause, to help make a new plan of attack and not destroy her entire city. Because you all know women belong in places decisions are being made. The repetitive nature of her request for him to listen and his repeated reply of, I am listening, is important. When someone is seeking us out to pour in wisdom and direction, we must be listening, actively listening. The wise woman then addresses something that is contrary to Joab's character. She speaks of her city as a place where people came to seek counsel, where they settled a matter with more than one source of input. Proverbs 11.14 Where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Proverbs 12, 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. She then describes herself as one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. Peaceable and faithful. She then speaks to his rash, destructive approach and gives him the consequences of such. You seek to destroy Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? And Joab can't even see it in himself. He can't see outside his brutal instincts, and he denies it. Far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. He gives defense for his actions. This way of thinking is a pathway he's made for himself. A rut that no one has had the courage to speak into. What could have ended with even more bloodshed and destruction ends with a woman going to all the people in her wisdom, carrying out the plan, And unfortunately for Sheba, ends with only his head being thrown over the wall of the city, Joab blowing his trumpet and leading the people back to Jerusalem. So now that we looked at the story, let's take a deeper look under the surface of how Joab and David got here. In chapter 11, when Joab was given the orders to have Uriah murdered, David's desire to cover up his sin with Bathsheba through Uriah's death seems to have planted a seed in Joab, that has grown into power-hungry, bloodthirsty, self-serving dominance. He watched power be abused, and that sin has grown in him. Commentator Joyce Baldwin says, Affairs of state are shown to be closely bound up with personal relationships. Sinful liaisons have repercussions that rebound far beyond the private lives of the individuals concerned. And at the same time, David, though forgiven by God, found himself handicapped by his own past, and unable to discipline others, even his own children never came to terms with what their father had done. David had accepted Nathan's powerful rebuke over him. He had confessed to the Lord, and he had tasted the grace poured out on him by Jehovah Makadash, the Lord who sanctifies you, the Lord who makes holy. Oh, if we would have seen this transferred into David's relationships. What a beautiful picture of repentance this would have been for David to have confessed his sin to Joab and sought his forgiveness, to been humble and repentant and weak, to disciple him towards the heart of the Father, which was one of freedom, grace, gentleness. We can assume based on the lack of fruit in their relationship that David has not confessed his sin to Joab. Joab has held David's sin over him and felt he had an upper hand over his kingship. Decades later, this is coming out all kinds of sideways in both Joab and David's lives. We know David confessed to sin to God, and we all know that he has been forgiven and that he can walk in freedom. However, has the memory of these sins kept him from feeling like he has a place of discipleship in others' lives? Time seems to have created a chasm between them and his own sons, and we can assume others as we see it in his shaken kingdom. Joab has been misled by David's misuse of power and yet continued reign. He does not see his usurping of David's authority as bitterness towards David. He isn't confronting his own questions and unforgiveness inside of him and how it has led him to this place in life. So we see the ripple effects and have watched Joab's character intensify. David's lack of effort to address Joab's pride, impulsiveness, ruthless and ambitious ego keeps Joab and Positions of power, which he is happy to keep hold of. In this chapter, David only minimally attempts to rein in Joab's dominance by demoting him, but allowing him to continue to be part of the army passively allows their patterns to remain. He has given up on intervening for his heart. And as we read in 1 Kings 2 5, just leaves him for Solomon to deal with. David said, Moreover, you know what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me. How he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals on his feet. Act, therefore, according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to shale in peace. Mary J. Evans states that any refusal to make tough decisions or carry out difficult actions because of a desire not to offend someone of significance within the community, or because of a wish for certain things not to be revealed, is likely to end up causing more trouble than is saved. We've all been there. We've either been the sinner or on the receiving end. It does not feel easy to confess, to say, I'm sorry, to bring the truth to light, and then, will you forgive me? It never feels easy to confront someone with something we see going on in their life. It's uncomfortable and takes true counsel, time, insight, and courage. And it can evoke so much fear of man. And Satan wants to keep us there, making it seem impossible to become free from the consequences, the confrontations, all of it. But God, Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. He can do this. This is who he is, the God who makes a way, who makes a way for us to come to each other, to come to him. Because ultimately that is what he is after, for his children to come home to him and find peace and rest and belovedness in him alone, restored, reconciled, and beloved. Author Ann Voskamp says, there is no way God will ever abandon us. There's no way he will ever give up on us. He can only give us hesed, loving kindness. The way the waymaker's heart beats toward every struggler and sufferer and straggler wandering home is nothing less than from Hosea eleven eight. My compassion grows warm and tender. There is freedom when sin is brought into the light, and there is glory when brothers and sisters repent to one another. There is grace as we walk reconciled to Christ and to each other. And this is our ministry, the ministry of reconciliation. He has entrusted this to us, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19. All this is from God who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us this message of reconciliation. Pastor Dane Ortland says, you are restricting your growth if you do not move through life doing the painful, humiliating, liberating work of cheerfully bringing your failures out from the darkness of secrecy into the light of acknowledgement before a Christian brother or sister. In the darkness, your sins fester and grow in strength. In the light, they wither and die. Walking in the light, in other words, is honesty with God and others. And Tim Keller adds, the impetus of initiating reconciliation always starts with me. We are to make every effort to keep the bond of peace. We see this played out in our scripture today, and I think God does call us to be in these humble places, to be honest with ourselves and with each other, and to be able to say hard things when it should be done. But these are all delicate situations, none like another, and should be handled with care. If you're in a relationship where you need to confess a sin, or if you feel the Spirit leading you to confront something in someone's life, begin by taking this to the Lord, finding counsel, and first understanding your own belovedness and much-needed grace in Christ. They journey homeward to a messy, fragile kingdom. While yes, David's kingdom is still intact, the rebellions are over, the revolters are dead, the kingdom is shaken. The chapter ends with three verses giving the list of David's cabinet. So this was also provided in 2 Samuel chapter 8, which was about 20 years prior, 10 years into David's reign. And this time, commentators point out that there are some significant differences To start, verse 23 begins with, Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. Chapter 8, verse 15 opened with, So David reigned over all Israel, and he administered justice and righteousness for all his people. Second in the list was Joab being commander over the army. Naming David first as king was significant and painted a picture of his kingship and his role overseeing the people. David isn't even mentioned this time around. And after Joab has murdered two commanders of the army over Israel, he is listed first in the cabinet. In verse 24, Adoram was in charge of the forced labor, the prisoners of war. This is a new role and a big problem. In the future, Adoram would be in charge of more than 180,000 men who served for Solomon's building projects. The forced labor is what eventually led to the demise of Israel itself. Finally, there's no mention of David's sons being priests, as included in 8.18. Is this a situation similar to the sons of Eli? While this is unclear, what we do see is a reduction in the number of priests that David had in his cabinet, which cues us into the direction of the leadership. The order and grandeur of David's kingdom has dimmed. We watched Israel fail politically with Saul, morally with David, and we will see it fail religiously with Solomon. We are left with a picture of an imperfect king with a kingdom that shall end. Alistair Begg says, The Old Testament leaves us with unanswered questions, an unfinished symphony, that yearning to get back to the primary chord." So, we long for a perfect king with a kingdom that shall have no end. Because of Jesus, we can make our way to the Father where he is preparing a place for us to a kingdom that shall reign where all of our broken worlds come undone, are rewritten, reconciled, and restored. Where we return to our home of belovedness and gentle grace through Jesus Christ, who says in Revelation, I am making all things new. When we find ourselves in the darkest of places, he will be our light and he will bring us home. Will you join me? His grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way you love us through your word and how you so tenderly give us a picture of who you are and who we are to you. I pray that your spirit would fall afresh on us as we absorb what your word has spoken to us this morning. You know the stories that hearts are carrying in this room that we feel we will never get over. Would you be a balm of healing to us? And you know that relationships that need reconciling among us. Would you soften hearts and make a pathway for restoration and unity? We trust you in these places. May your glory be known in them. Amen.